0: John chapter 10, been a little bit subdued in the song service, and so I need some of you ameners to help me out a little bit in the preaching, and uh, some of you that are not ameners but have always wanted to be, this will be your opportunity to practice right here, help us out a little bit the gospel of John chapter number 10. I'm going to pick the story up in verse number 7, not go back and read what we looked at last week, but Pick it up in verse number 7, and I originally thought when I laid this out that we would cover these first 18 verses of this parable all in one. Finding that cannot be done. It's kind of like started Revelation on Wednesday night, and I had grand visions. Well, that first week we'd get through quite a few verses, and then next week quite a few verses, and I'm beginning to see that's not going to happen. It's going to have to slow it down just a little bit. But John chapter number 10 and verse number 7. Then said Jesus unto them again. Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he should be saved. I shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. We began looking at this chapter last week at the only parable in the Gospel of John. It is the parable of the Good Shepherd. It's a parable that extends all the way down to verse number 18 and then even beyond that in a second conversation later in the chapter, and so it helps us to get a clear grasp of how it is laid out. Last week in verse 1 through 6, we saw how that Jesus talks about the sheepfold and true and false shepherds. Then in verse 11, the verse that I did not read, down to verse number 18, he identifies himself as the good shepherd and continues the parable. But in between, in verse 7 through 10, he talks about a door. I am the door of the sheep. He mentions a door in verse number 1, but as I'll explain in a little bit, I think that this is a a different reference here in verse number 7. Now, most commentaries make a big deal out of this being a metaphor and not a parable. But as I told you last week, Jesus said in verse number 6, this is a parable. So they're all wrong. one of them are wrong. This is a parable. It is a parable in the form of a metaphor, but it is a parable. Now we are familiar if you remember in grammar and school, different figures of speech, you know a metaphor, you know a simile. The only difference between the two is that a simile uses like and as, Or a metaphor doesn't use that. We use figures of speech all the time. And then there are mixed metaphors, mixed metaphors. A mixed metaphor is when the comparison doesn't fit. It's when you take two metaphors and you put them together to make a convoluted mess. That's a mixed metaphor. For example, when the going gets tough, the early bird gets the worm. That's a mixed metaphor. I'll be here till the cows come home to roost. That is a mixed, you start to get the picture, that's a mixed metaphor. Right. So when Jesus says he is the door of the sheep, that sounds a little bit like a mixed metaphor. Because what do sheep and doors have anything to do with each other? But the Lord ties them together and he teaches a very wonderful, wonderful truth. Now think for just a minute about doors. Every one of you walked through, at least most of you did. I was thinking McDonald's, they live next door, but every one of you except them walked through at least three doors to get here this morning, and you didn't give those doors a minute's thought. I walked out of the door of my house early this morning, and then I got into my truck through a door. I came into this building through a door. So a door gives us access. It allows us into a building or a desired destination. But a door also keeps the undesirables out. We lock our door at night to keep out intruders. You lock your car door to prevent it from being stolen. You may have a safe in your house where you have all of your money. And if you do, you have a door with some kind of lock on that. You couldn't have come to church this morning, you can't go to work tomorrow without some kind of access to a door. And when Jesus says he is the door of the sheep, it means that he is the means by which some enter and he is the means by which others are kept out. A door. And a door is the simplest of pictures. We take it for granted, but doors are very important. And I wanna take a minute and I wanna examine what Jesus means when he says he is the door of the sheep. Last week, you remember that we tied this chapter back to chapter nine where Jesus healed the man born blind. That begins a confrontation with the Pharisees because Jesus had performed this miracle on the Sabbath and the Jewish elders are desperately trying to discredit the Lord Jesus. But for the first time in chapter nine, They're not attacking the Lord, but they're attacking the people. In fact, it says that they threaten the people to cast them out of the synagogue if they confess Christ. In fact, the man born blind, when he begins to confess Christ, the Bible says that they cast him out. And without going back to that scene, it is those Jewish elders that Jesus is now speaking to in this chapter. When he talks about thieves and robbers who try to enter in by some other way but the door, he's talking about them. In verse five, he calls them strangers who do not know the sheep. He says that they are spiritually blind. You are blind to your own sin. You are blind to the savior. You are truly blind leaders of the blind and those who follow you are gonna follow you straight to hell. That's what he's saying in this passage. By the way, the greatest blindness is to be blinded by the light. there 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 is no one person more blinded than those who have been exposed to the word of God over a long period of time yet are still unsaved. There is no one that is harder to reach with the gospel than somebody who is up to his ears in religion and knows the Bible and the story like he knows the back of his hand. The most damning lie that Satan has ever told is that the gospel is true, but it's for somebody else. Now, if somebody comes in on a Sunday morning reeking of alcohol and tobacco smoke and tattoos all over and and a little bit of a hangover, it's easier to get that person to fall under conviction than it is some church member who carries a big Bible but's never been saved. Because they have eyes but they don't see, they have ears but they don't hear. So this is what Jesus is talking about. Now, in our verses tonight, this morning, just these three verses, Let me just tell you three things that he's telling us. First of all, I want you to notice how that Jesus expresses a comparison. Pick it up in verse number seven with me. Then said Jesus unto them again, barely, barely. Now let me stop right there. We use filler words in our everyday speech. That's just filler. Like actually. I use this a lot. I have to catch myself to be honest. Well, if I don't use that, does that mean I'm not being honest? That's just filler is all it is while I'm thinking about what I'm going to be honest about, all right? That, that's filler words. Well, Jesus didn't use filler words. He spoke with precision, and he spoke with purpose. And, and verily, verily, it's kind of like saying amen. Now, Now, we usually say amen at the end of a statement to say we agree with what just said. But Jesus says amen before he says it. And, of course, every word, every word that Jesus spoke was truth. But when he says, verily, verily, he's calling attention to what he's about to say. He's speaking assertively. He's speaking forcefully. He's speaking dogmatically. So he says, verily, verily, he says, I am the door of the sheep. Now, again, a metaphor is where one thing is declared to be another thing. And we understand that Jesus is not saying that he's a plank of wood or that he has hinges or that he's a doorknob. That's ridiculous. But whatever a door is to sheep, that's what Jesus is. We talked about the shepherd last week and there being one door and that was the only way for the sheep to get in and to get out of the sheepfold. So Jesus says, I am the only way to come in. You must come to him for salvation. He is the only entrance into eternal life. Jesus says he is the door. He is the door. I I thought about that and I, I thought how that he is an open door. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Savior, he's open to you. He is open to all of those who will come by repentance and by faith. He is open to whosoever will. And if you want to come to Christ, the door this morning is wide open for you. But then I thought about how that he is a closed door because the door lets some in, it lets some out, but the door keeps predators out of the sheepfold. It shields the sheep from the wolves and other wild animals, so it is open to the sheep, but it's closed to the dangers. I thought about how that he is the only door. He is not one of many, he is not one of many saviors. And by the way, Jesus did not leave any room for for comparative religions. He does not believe in being inclusive to other religions. Muhammad and Buddha and the JWs and the Catholics and all the rest of them, they're not a door to God. He's the only door. And I thought about how he's a personal door. The door is not the church, it's not a creed, it's not a ritual, but it is a person. There is no ladder by which you climb your way up into heaven. Salvation is not in a plan, it's not in a prayer, it's not in a program, it's in the person named Jesus Christ. If you agree with that, say amen. 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 Now, that's a simple picture, but it's a blessed picture. We don't have to be deep to be blessed. We ought to be able to get blessed over the simplicity which is in Jesus Christ. Somebody says, what is getting saved like? It's like walking through a door. So come to Jesus Christ and be saved from sin and from condemnation and from perishing and from the wrath of God. And Jesus is telling these Pharisees that the blind man came into the kingdom of God by me, but you're still on the outside because you're trying to come in some other way. No matter how good you are, no matter how moral you are, no matter how impressive your religious credentials, you'll never make it to heaven some other way than the door of Jesus Christ. So I notice how that Jesus expresses this comparison. But then in verse number eight, I want you to see how that Jesus exposes the counterfeits. Look at verse eight. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers but the sheep did not hear them. Now this is the second time that he has said thieves and robbers, thieves and robbers. What's the difference between thieves and robbers? Well, a thief is somebody who comes in by deception in the middle of the night. A robber takes by intimidation or by force. He says to these Pharisees, he says you are thieves in that you twist the word of God and you lie and you deceive and you corrupt the way of salvation. But you are robbers in that you intimidate the people and you weigh them down with heavy burdens. Yeah, right. So he's talking about these false prophets. I, I, I thought the last couple of days about heretics and false teachers. And, 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 and a false teacher is generally accepting of other false teachers, not always. But heretics seem to enjoy the company of other heretics. Apostates hang out with other apostates. And it's interesting that when you read the gospels that Jesus reserves his strongest denouncement for false prophets. A compromiser is somebody who says that we ought to be complementary to other false religions in the name of unity. Let's just set our differences aside and let's just be united. Jesus didn't believe in that. Jesus didn't rebuke the harlot and the prophet. No, he rebuked the false prophets is what he did, the religious hypocrite. In fact, Matthew chapter 23 is the chapter of condemnation on hypocrisy. And if you were to take a harmony of the gospels that harmonizes the passages, you would find that Matthew chapter 23, that setting is somewhere between John 10 and John chapter 11. Somewhere right there in that same vicinity. In fact, I want you to put a bookmarker right here because we're coming back. And I want you to go to Matthew chapter 23. I just want to step outside the book. I want to go to Matthew 23 and I want to show you what Jesus thought about these false teachers, these false prophets. Matthew 23 comes at the end of a long day of confrontation. They've been questioning his authority, questioning his credentials. And in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus gives his last sermon to these people and he's warning them of the danger of false prophets. In Matthew 23, verse 1 through 7, we'll not read it, but he addresses the people, and he warns them of the danger of a false prophet. In verse 8 through 12, he turns to his own disciples and said, you don't be like them. You be a true preacher. In verse 14 down to verse 26, he turns to the Pharisees and says, you are the ones that I'm talking about. And it tells us that there have always been false prophets. There have always been heretics in the pulpit since the days of Christ. When you come to the book of Acts and you come to the the epistles of Paul, they're they're talking about grievous wolves that will enter in and not sparing the flock and speaking perverse things. So apostasy and heresy is not a new thing, but it certainly is prevalent in these last days. In fact, I think that one of the things that makes False teaching so prevalent in our day is the influence of the internet. You can Google and search any wild notion out there and have reams of information whether it's true or not. And nowadays, instead of studying the Bible, we have people that study the internet just to find out what somebody else has said. I had a man years ago who wanted to challenge me on the King James Issue, the King James Bible issue, and we are King James only. And so he wanted to challenge me on that. He brought me about 80 pages of information refuting the King James Bible. Well, all that he did is he went to critical sites on the internet, which there's a thousand of them, and he just copied and copied and copied. Just because you can copy and paste from the internet doesn't mean that you've studied anything. That's not studying the Bible, that's studying the internet is all that it is. I believe there is something else that makes false teaching so prevalent in this day. That's the cowardice of Christians to speak against it. When the church is feminized and loses its militancy, then heresy has a heyday. And that's the result of watching too many TV preachers and and women preachers, by the way, And so you, is that okay if I say that? Y'all help me just a little bit. You read Matthew chapter 23, and Jesus does not want us all to get along and set our differences aside and come together in kumbaya. No, there needs to be a pushback. There needs to be a counterattack to heresy. God deliver us from effeminate Christianity. So in Matthew chapter 23, the Lord denounces these false prophets, these scribes and Pharisees, these hypocrites, these thieves and robbers, and these given us some characteristics of it. I'll just give you a few of these. Look at verse number 13. He says, Woe well, unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. The first mark of a false prophet is that he keeps people away from God. Yeah, right. Now, if you'll read enough ecumenical problem that comes out of a Christian Bookstore, all right, if you read enough of that, you'll be conditioned to think, well, they're nice people, they're good people, they got a good smile, they're moral, they're family-oriented. That may be true, but if they're preaching a false gospel, they are keeping people out of heaven with their false gospel. They're keeping people away from God. You see, here's what happens. I feel like preaching for just a minute if you'll help me. Here's what happens, there'll be some man who wakes up to his sin and knows that he needs God and so he begins to seek. He don't know where the answer is but he's starting to seek. Maybe he loses his job or health or wife or whatever and he's been getting drunk every night trying to drown his sorrows out and his life is all messed up now. He realizes it's a downward spiral. I've gotta fix this thing, I gotta straighten my life out and he's got a buddy at work that goes to the kingdom Hall, and so the buddy invites him to go to the Kingdom Hall with him. Now they're in his home having a Bible study, and and, and 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 he thinks that he's found God. He thinks he's found eternal life because he's cleaning his life up. Let me tell you what they've done. They have shut up the Kingdom of God to that man. Right. They haven't helped him get in, they've blocked the way, they have shut him out. When he was in turmoil and the conviction of sin and trying to find answers, he's moving in the right direction. But before a soul winner could get to him, the devil got an apostate, got a heretic to him to slam the door in his face for the kingdom of God. That's exactly what happened in Jesus' day. John the Baptist came on the scene preaching the kingdom of God is at hand and people came to hear him and they began to repent in preparation for the Messiah to come. But then John looked in the back of the crowd and he saw those Pharisees and those Sadducees. He told the people, he said, you better be careful of those snakes, that den of vipers. He said, they'll send you to hell. If you listen to those Pharisees and all their religion and all of their rituals, they'll shut you out of the kingdom of God. And that's exactly what they did. In the very beginning, the nation is moving toward the Messiah, but those false religious leaders slam the door in their face. He says, they're denying you the kingdom of God. Look in verse four, here's another mark of them. Well, verse 14, what do you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites? For ye devour widows' houses. In Bible days, a widow was a vulnerable person. She was seen as without having a protector or provider. So she's left out on her own. She could work if her age permitted. If she had children to help take care of her, that that is a help. More than likely, she's going to be poor, she's going to be lonely, and God took care of her case in a very unique way. And the Jewish synagogue, in fact, had a way of caring for the widows in their synagogue. Every Friday, there would be a group of men that would go around to the parishioners, and they would collect a free will offering for the poor, the widows, the orphans, and people could give for benevolence. They would bring it back to the synagogue, whatever was collected. They would pass it out to the widows and the poor. And it wasn't much, but that's how they could, took care of the widows. But somehow the Pharisees are taking advantage of the widows. Somehow they are fleecing them financially. Somehow they are preying on them. And I don't know how they were cheating them, but they knew that the poor widows could be abused and they knew that they could prey on people they were supposed to protect. And Jesus knew that and Jesus saw that. He said, ye devour widows' houses. Now, now I'm talking to you this morning about how to identify a false prophet, all right? That's where we're at right now, all right? We are exposing the counterfeits, all right? Now, 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 let me tell you something this, or as your pastor. If you are a widow or a widower or an elderly person in here and you give your money to some TV preacher, look at me. Please don't. Please don't. Don't send your money to some famous TV preacher on TBN or whatever it might be. If you need help with finances, please ask somebody that can help you. If you don't have family, you look right here. This church will never ask you for money. This church will never ask you for dime. This preacher will never ask you for money. You should never ask an elderly person to loan you money. Amen. should he got seven more amens out of that right there. You should never try to befriend them hoping you get in their wheel. And if I ever found out that you were, I'd raise a big stink about it, a holy stink, but it'd be a stink is what I'd raise, amen. They're devouring widows, house, and it's happening today. I believe every member ought to tithe. I believe every member ought to give them missions. If God has blessed you financially, you want to help the church, that's totally up to you. But if somebody starts hinting around that you do that, run away, run away from Not only that, but they're disingenuous in their promises. Look at verse 16. Now this is interesting. Woe unto you, ye blind guys. This is the loving Jesus. Which say, whosoever shall swear by the temple, it's nothing, whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor, ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold. Now here's what the Lord's talking about without reading the rest of the verses. A Pharisee comes into the temple and he makes a vow and he swears by the temple. But then sometime later he wants to get out of that vow. But he has swore by the temple. So he comes along and he says, well I swore by the temple, that's not really a big thing. What's well, really big if you swear by the gold of the temple. If you swear by the gold of the temple, now that's really serious. Or I swore by the altar. But that's not really big. If you swear by the gift on the altar, that's that big time right there, all right. I mean, if I swear by the gift on the altar, I swear by the gold of the temple, then that just seals the deal. But it's no big deal if you just swear by the temple or by, by the altar. This is what they're doing. Now, now, why would you need to swear by anything if you were an honest person? It ought to be that you just gave your word and your word becomes your bond. But in dishonest societies, you want a surety, you want a guarantee. That's why when you bought that car, you bought that house, you had to sign 75 papers yeah. promising that you was going to pay and here's what's going to happen if you don't pay. So in Bible days, they would swear on something and that was somehow supposed to guarantee that they would keep their promises. But these Pharisees are dishonest anyway. They had this elaborate system built of ways to get out of their vows. And it's really, really quite simple. It's like holding your hand behind your back and crossing your finger like that really, really means something. And all the Lord is doing, he's calling them out for their lying. They are dishonest. In fact, the Bible says we don't even need to make vows. Just let your yea be your nay and your nay be your nay. Let yes be yes and let no be nay. No, and you don't need to swear on the life of your daughter or stack of grandma's Bibles. Just be a person of integrity. They dishonest is what they are. Let me give you one more. They, they are devout in petty things. Look at verse 23. Woe well, unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and covenant have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment and mercy and faith, These ought ye to have done and not leave the other undone. In the Old Testament, God established a tithe for his people. Tithing is 10% of the increase of your income. You cannot give more, you cannot give less if it's a tithe. A tithe is 10%, that's all that it is. A dollar out of every 10 belongs to God, and that's how you finance the work of God. If you're a member of this church and you don't tithe, then you ought to start today. All right. You know where we stand on that. In the Old Testament, it's mostly an agricultural society. So crops were sometimes the currency. So you read in Leviticus, you read in Deuteronomy that they tithe of the increase of their seed. That means they would plant seeds, the crop would come up, they'd give the first fruits, the first 10%. They would give that to God. I won't go into the different tithes that they have, but you plant the seed, you get the increase, and you tithe off of that. The Pharisees are taking it to the extreme, to the extreme. Here you got a little lady, she's got a little pot in her kitchen window, and she's growing herbs, mint, and it's just, just little herbs. And the Pharisees, you've got to tithe off of that, too. That becomes, we, we were out to eat the other day with Jaden and the. and we went to dinner the other day, and I was, I sat down in a chair, and whoever I sat down before, they had loose pockets, and there was four pennies that had fallen out of their pocket, and was just sitting right there on, on the chair. So I just... Picked up the four pennies and just put them in my pocket. I mean, you just put them in my pocket. Now, I did not write a tithe for those four pennies. <laughs> now, my salary, I'll tithe off of that. My loan fund, I'll tithe off of that. Yeah. All right? The, the money, but those four pennies, forgive me, okay, <laughs> but I didn't know how to add a fourth of a penny. I, I, okay? So, so I did not tithe off of that. Yeah. That's menace. you understand yeah. the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law? It's so trivial trying to tithe off of a tiny mint. It's ridiculous to try to count that, but they did that because it made them feel good about their spirituality. But wow, they are counting out the leaves on their little mint plant. They're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Jesus said, you ought to be concerned with justice and mercy and faith. You're you're so invested in the trivial and you ignore what's really so important. You're so pious that you tithe off a little mint. But you don't show any mercy to the poor. Uh, it's exposing the counterfeit. I remember one time we had a hearing a prophecy preacher. He wasn't here. Heard a prophecy preacher. And I'm going to tell you, he was good. He had all of his charts, had all of his numbers. He, I mean, he had it all down. He knew a lot about prophecy. And then he came out and he's having an affair on his wife. And honestly, I think he'd have been better huh, working on his marriage instead of his prophecy charts. Who cares if you got dispensations and pre down if you don't know how to take care of your Somebody help me right there. You can preach prophecy, but if you're a fornicator, I'm not interested in hearing it from you. So Jesus pulls no punches. He, he, is, he is calling these prophets, false prophets what they really are. The rabbis, the priest class, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these are all men who claim to be men of God, but they, but Jesus exposes them and exposes their ministry. Now, now you say, all right, what's the application to me? Here it is. There are some preachers you ought not listen to. There are some people you ought not read. There are some false teachers that you ought to stay away from. There's some religious authorities that you ought not follow. Right. There are some ministers, there are some ministries that you ought not send any money to. Right. If you money, you can if you want to, but I'm just telling you as a preacher, you ought to stay away from them. And some of them, they come across as so loving and so kind. And when they sing and when they cry, you think it's the power of God. And they are popular and they have great followings, what have you there. And and, and they they make you feel good and they smile a whole lot. And they got a whole lot of people following them and a whole lot of people watching them. They are wolves in sheep's clothing that will destroy your soul if you give them a hearing. Beware, beware of the false prophet. Come come back to John 10. Come back, come back, come back. I got to hear Come back to John 10. Let me me show you one thing what Jesus said about them. Look at verse 8. He said, all that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. Watch this. But the sheep did not hear them. Now we talked last week about the sheep hearing the voice of the shepherd. And when the shepherd comes into the sheepfold, only those sheep recognize his voice. Jesus says that they won't follow the voice of a stranger. He's saying that to the Pharisees so he is telling them that there are some in Israel that will follow after you but there are some in Israel that will not follow me. He says that there is when they come to me there is a spirit enabled discernment in order to know my voice. They've lived under your deception and your lies and your apostasy long enough but they will not follow you. Verse 25, a stranger they will not follow. Now I believe that there are saved people in bad churches. Right. Yeah. I believe there are saved people in false churches. Yeah. Yeah. But when the Spirit of God moves in, I believe there becomes a discernment. Yeah. There comes something inside where what I've been hearing all of my life has an uncertain sound. Right. Yeah. That church, that false preacher, he doesn't sound the same. There's an uncertain sound, that false prophet's voice. It does not ring true like it did before. You may not know what is wrong with the teaching. It may take them years to get out from under the teaching, but there is something wrong here. There is an alarm going off in my head. There is something in my spirit that says, this is not right. Tell me who you're listening to. I'll tell you who you're following. Jesus exposes the counterfeit. Very quickly, verse number nine. I want you to see how Jesus extends a call. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he should be saved. He shall go in and out and find pasture. Now, I need you to listen very carefully to me this morning when I say this. Because I want to be textually right. I want to interpret the past- passage correctly. In the first part of this parable, verse 1 through 6, I said that the sheepfold is Israel. The thieves and robbers are these Pharisees. Jesus is the true shepherd who came in by the door to call the sheep. That's what verse 1 and 2 says. He is the true shepherd. He is identified by how he approaches the sheep, how he calls the sheep. If any shepherd comes into the sheep of Israel, any other way, he's not the true shepherd. The Old Testament prophecy said here's how he's coming. This is the way that he's coming. This is what he's going to look like. This is the one. So so he is the one that they spoke of. But when he spoke, it comes the true way through the door. Then his true sheep hear him. Romans 9, 6 says, for all Israel is not all of Israel. It's not true Israel, spiritual Israel. Verse 6, they didn't understand that. So there's a break. And in verse 7, he continues the parable. And he's talking about the same thing, but he's not talking about the same thing, watch this. Because before, it was the shepherd who entered in by the door. But now he declares he is the door. Check your Bible, that's what it says. And now he doesn't say anything about the sheepfold, but now he says, by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. So he can't be talking about Israel because getting saved does not place you into the sheepfold of Israel. Something else is going on here. And, And it could be that in the first part of the parable, the primary audience is the Pharisees where he focused on the false shepherds, the false shepherds being themselves. But it could be that he now turns toward the more general audience of the people that are standing around him, because here he's gonna make an appeal, not not a denouncement, now he is making an appeal to people. There was no invitation in the first part of the parable, but there is an invitation in the second part of the parable. He didn't invite the false shepherds to come into himself, he is gonna invite others to come in. So when Jesus says here that he is the door, it's not the same door that he's talking about in verse number one. And so many commentators get that confused. He's not talking about the sheepfold of the nation of Israel now. He's talking about coming into the kingdom of God. This is how you get saved. In verse 1 through 6, he focuses more on the national aspect of Israel. In verse 7 through 18, it's more personal salvation. So for those who enter into the door, which is Jesus Christ, he said, here's the blessings of coming into the door by me. Look at it in verse 9. He says, I am the door. He says, by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. Well, that's a good Bible word, isn't it? The word "saved" encompasses everything that happened when you trusted Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me, John uses that word only three times in his gospel. It's more of a Pauline word. John just uses it three times. But it's good to be saved. Saved from self-righteousness, saved from condemnation, Saved from the power of sin, saved from the torments of hell, saved from the danger of condemnation, saved from the wrath of God, saved from eternity It it is a blessing to be saved. To be saved. But then notice what else he says. He shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Now a novice could read that. He's going in and out, say, all right, he's losing his salvation. He's in, saved, he's out, he ain't saved. He's in, he's out. He's in, he's out. And you can go to some churches this morning, and that's what they tell you. You in, you out. Don't know. But you better make sure you in when you die. And that's, there's a lot of people that believe that. That's what you call silly exegesis. That's what that's called. It's called silliness. It means that you have freedom. You have liberty to live life. That's what it means. You can go in and out. A couple of years ago, they shut the country down with COVID. Tried to, did, a lot of people. A lot more restricted than Florida and there were places where you could not leave your house except to get groceries and the bare necessities. Whatever the government said you needed, you could go out and get that, all right? That's that's what it was. You didn't have any freedom. Jesus is simply saying that there is freedom to come and go and to live an abundant life. The Pharisees, they placed so many restrictions on the Jews, there was no freedom, but not so in Jesus Christ. It says you go in and out and find, pastor, he'll meet all your needs. He'll supply all of your substances, and then notice in verse number 10. I got to hurry. Last part, he says, "I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly." You haven't started living until you met Jesus. Yeah. A life that is overflowing with the goodness of God, a God that is abundant in all of His mercy. All of his grace, yeah. all of his kindness, all of his abundance is, aware, is a mathematical term for a surplus. Amen. You have more left over than you need. When you've had all that you need, there's still a whole lot more and you don't know what to do with it. Yeah. I think about Jesus feeding the 5,000. And I think of how they started with 12 fragments and... When every man was full, when every man was full, they had 12 baskets full of fragments. After every man is eaten to his full, there's more left over than they had in the beginning. I wanna tell you something, that's how it is with Jesus Christ. He gives you more than you need and a whole lot left over. I think of a river that overflows its bank. There's too much water in the river to, to contain it, and so it spills over. God's grace fills our hearts sometimes, and it spills over, and it's big enough to, to, to flow in our heart and flow to somebody else. Thank God for that. The abundant life. It's so a French commentator's name, Frederick Godet, and Frederick Godet said that God's pastures always contain more nourishment than the sheep can ever make use of. The world says we've missed out on so much. I say when I was seven years old, and 54. Boy, I missed a lot of this world. I really did. I've missed venereal disease and I've missed out on hangovers. Never had a nervous breakdown. Never spent a night in jail. Missed out on the joy and the tragedy of a wasted life. Oh, the most wonderful yeah. life. The most abundant life is a life in Christ Jesus. Yeah. He has blessed me and he's blessed me beyond measure. He has filled my life with joy and hope and purpose and peace and even when you have hard times, even when you have a tough week, there's Jesus right yeah. there beside yeah. you. In yeah. the yeah. night watches and in the day watches and he's your shepherd in yeah. the night. you yeah. so yeah. your shepherd this morning. Yeah. Do you hear his voice? Yeah. Can you say he's giving me a abundant life.